Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, on this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast, I'm joined by Eric Thompson of Hardwired Outdoors. Eric is an Oregon-based hunter and a self-described upland game bird addict slash aficionado. He was down in Arkansas to uh, go speckle belly goose hunting for the weekend uh, here at Black Duck Revival, and I was so stoked that he took a little bit of time uh, aside from his small window of relaxation one evening to uh, join me next door at the Black Duck Bungalow and have this really fun and frank conversation. Eric spends all of his free time, or as much of it, I guess, as is humanly possible, trouncing and tromping around uh, the western states and these United States with his dogs, chasing the, the red-legged devil, as he described it, the chucker. He's also hunting other upland game birds, pheasants, grouse, and the like, and we'll talk more about that. But overall, I'm just fascinated with the positivity that just oozes from this guy. Every time I've hung out with him, and I've hung out with him in Oregon, and I've hung out with him now in Arkansas, and I hope to be able to get up to Oregon sometime and do some hunting with him. But every time I'm around this guy, he just makes you feel better because he's so positive. He's so comfortable in his own skin. Uh, that in itself is is a reason to be around him. But his his level of depth and passion for chasing upland game birds is also something that I found super attractive and was just kind of a, a thrill and a pleasure to be around. We talk about his hunting. We talk about his familial background. We talk about what he's doing with hardwired outdoors uh, and his advocacy for uh, bringing new hunters into the activity and for just broadening the horizons and the narratives uh, around hunting. So please enjoy this interview with Eric Thompson of Hardwired Outdoors. Hey, all right, so I'm back up here in Brinkley, Arkansas. It's still waterfowl season. I am not at the old church as usual. I'm next door at the Black Duck Bungalow because there's people watching a football game at the church right now. And I'm joined by Eric Thompson, uh, a native and resident of Oregon. Uh, Eric describes himself as a upland game aficionado and bird dog obsessed human being. And you might have seen him on Instagram under the moniker of Hardwired Outdoors. I guess the first time we met was back in the spring when uh, I was up in Oregon to do a turkey hunt with uh, Jimmy and Lydia from Hunters of Color and just kind of happened to see a, a poster or something, some notification I got that Eric had liked, and I just clicked on it and saw that he was from Oregon. Uh, I saw he was a black upland guy, and I was like, man, let me just look this guy up and see how far he is from where I'm going. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to make connections when you can with people, and we ended up uh, going out to lunch. You, me, and Lydia, we went out to lunch, and 
now you and Lydia and Jimmy are homies, and uh, you've ended up here on this, uh, joined us for this hunt that we did uh, in conjunction with Hunters of Color, which I've had a blast at so far, a uh, really cool group of people, and yeah, I just, I didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk to you, so Eric, uh, welcome to the podcast, and thank you, man. Hey, I'm glad to be here. It's been an exciting last few days, and getting to experience waterfowl hunting in arkansas yeah we got to see the range of it uh the first day we had funky weather uh i think the winds were like upwards of 25 miles per hour like strong enough that it was hard for the birds that were trying to commit to get down into the spread uh i mean we lit birds like 100 yards from the decoys because when they'd cup up to come down the wind would push them but uh and then we went back today the temperature dropped like 35 degrees, almost 40 degrees, but the wind died died down a little bit, and uh, we were, were able to, you know, have a pretty decent hunt. Uh, everybody got birds, and we actually, we rode some, like, freezing rain out for an hour or two, uh, and kind of, you know, if I would fine-tune that a little bit more, I would have pulled out probably 15 minutes earlier, because... I feel like by the time we left, like people were starting to, they, they had started to have to endure the weather a little bit, but, uh, that's kind of all part of it as well. And yeah, then we came back and ate and got birds cleaned and we're going to eat some gumbo here in a little bit after we do this podcast. But man, so, I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier, you know, you, you mess with waterfowl, you shoot ducks, but you know, that's kind of, I feel like that's kind of an incidental pursuit for you and that really your focus and your passion is uh, upland hunting. And so that's, you know, taking place in Oregon. We talked about earlier, like Oregon, close to Idaho. Uh, you even got a move plan to, to uh, make that kind of hunting more accessible. But, oops, excuse me. Uh, I always kind of like to start, you know, at the beginning with people and what brought them into these pursuits and how they're living their life. And, uh, you've lived a pretty interesting life and you've, you've done, uh, you've done and are doing things that I think one, someone like at first glance might not expect you to. Uh, and what I think I really appreciate about it is that you seem so comfortable in your skin, uh, and so comfortable being yourself and just, presenting yourself, you know, as an, uh, or, 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 uh, moving in the world with an authentic presentation of yourself. So, I mean, just, we've been kind of having these like frank conversations this weekend. So, uh, you know, I think probably a lot of folks don't even know that black people live in Oregon and you don't just live there. You're born and raised there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would imagine like very intimately identify with the place. So, uh, but interestingly enough, your mother is from kind of rural Arkansas. Uh, we've talked about this on other podcasts that it seems like all the black folks I meet from the West coast are one or two generations removed from Louisiana, Texas, or Arkansas. Uh, and so, yeah, man, how did your people get out there to Oregon and you know, where did you come from? Well, uh, I am one generation removed from Arkansas and Texas. Okay, yeah, there you go. Yeah, my grandfather packed up his 14 children at the time, I believe it was. Lord have mercy. Yeah. Uh, 
right when civil rights was getting very prominent here in Arkansas because mm -hmm. there had been trouble in their small town and he was a migrant. He is actually a sharecropper and did migrant work and he just figured it was best to move on west and do migrant work out in Arizona and that's what he did. He loaded them all up on a truck and not only them but the older ones with their spouses. So he took his whole family and transplanted them to Arizona. Uh, my dad and my mom met in Arizona on a cotton farm. And at that point in time, they would, uh, they moved. Try not to hit that cord if you can, man. Okay. Yeah. Uh, at that point in time, they moved just a little bit uh, north of Luling back into Texas. Once I got married, then back to Arizona, and my grandfather had done a circuit on the migrant worker route through California. He had finished cotton, moved up through California, picked fruit and berries, and then into southern Oregon and wound up in uh, the Columbia River Gorge picking apples. And he came back and said, I'm moving to Oregon. I'm taking the rest of the family, moving to Oregon. It's the most beautiful place I've ever lived. He moved all of his other kids that had not gotten married up to Estacada, or not Estacada, I'm sorry, Hood River. And they picked apples and did migrant work there. Then they started picking in Estacada. They settled into the Willamette Valley. And that's where the story of me comes along. My parents followed them up there. My mom went back to school to become a nurse. My dad got a job in a factory and I was born the first child born in Oregon and Everybody else has been born there since for our immediate family. Gotcha. So what part of what part of Oregon is that that you grew up in? I grew up in the Willamette Valley. And for most folks, they don't know or realize that the Willamette Valley was the introduction point for uh, pheasant. So the Willamette Valley used to be a destination like North Dakota, South Dakota. It was filthy with pheasant in my childhood there were pheasants that would set on our fence pheasants that would be in our backyard there were fields all around us and that was really my first introduction to hunting because i was that was a hunt that i could follow my brothers on it when, wasn't when, too cold one, real quick when you said the introduction point for pheasants do you mean in north america in north america okay yeah that's where they started and then they went ahead and introduced them on to other places, but the Willamette Valley was like the first spot that they came to. And so, like I said, that was a bird that I could follow my brothers behind when they went out hunting and I had great brothers. They were a lot older than me and they took me everywhere with them. And so I started out following them pheasant hunting. And then as the, as I got a little older and moved into, uh, other realms, they would, take me waterfowl hunting. So I was at this point in time in the seventies, there weren't a lot of, uh, kids, waiters, kids, things like that. Yeah. yeah they just yeah. didn't produce that stuff. So that meant I was carried. My older brother would carry me out to the blind. My older brother would carry me across the sloughs. They'd get me in the boat, drag me across. And I would sit in that blind five, six years old, cold, miserable, but happy to be there. And that is, that describes my, foray into hunting and how I've always been there. It's because it was something I just knew from birth, well, not birth, but from a small child that I wanted to do. And you talk about, 
I'm an incidental duck hunter. It wasn't always that way. It's been an evolution. And I started out following them with pheasant. And in the mid 80s, I did a lot of waterfowl hunting all the way up into mid 90s and 2000s. We were still, I wasn't doing as much duck hunting. I was doing more goose hunting. And then I got a different dog. And that dog, I kind of geared more towards Upland. And that's when I started that shift and just really started focusing on Upland. Uh, my family still duck hunts, still goose hunts. I'm right there with them when I get the chance. But most of the time, I spend my time out in the hills chasing chuckers. All right. Uh, and that, you know, that's something I have zero familiarity with because, you know, Upland hunting in the south is quail hunting and which they're I mean the quail population in Arkansas is uh sadly pitiful these days uh and then I would actually argue like squirrel hunting I would say is kind of a form of upland hunting yeah so you're talking about that now you're spending a lot of your times uh chasing these chuckers uh and so like you know for someone who's from where I live We've talked about it a little bit, but like, what's a chucker? You're hunting like chuckers, Hungarian uh, partridge, pheasants, uh, different kinds of grouse. Uh, and I think when people think of Oregon, they're thinking of like these kind of lush uh, Pacific coastal, like rainforesty type places. But you're doing a lot of this like in Eastern Oregon, which is a very different environment, like much more arid and open. So. Yeah, I mean, just talk to me like I'm an idiot who doesn't know anything about upland hunting, because I don't. Well, you just described Oregon. Most of it is arid, high desert. Uh, I won't claim it's like any of the other high deserts with all the cactus and everything, but it's uh, it's arid, and it is rocky and tough and steep, and that's where we find these birds at. Uh, Red-legged partridge, chucker, is what they're commonly known here in the U.S., uh, Mid-sized bird, tough as nails. They love to live in the rim rocks. They love to live at the top. You find them in the river breaks on like the John Day or the Deschutes River in Oregon or the Columbia River up to the north. Uh, the Owahis, the Snake River, one of my favorite places to hunt. And when we talk, when you see a lot of my pictures, uh, you'll see me on the Deschutes because it was close to home when I lived in Central Oregon. And it's a little closer right now. But when I get over to the snake, those vistas are just absolutely stunning. They're not always as arid. They're a little more dry grass, but they're going down to the river. But it's a lot steeper and a lot longer way down. The Yawahis, they're they can be fairly steep. And there's other locations. So the chuckers in Oregon range in that central Oregon up through the Columbia Basin down Snake River. Uh... And then we down towards Nevada, Idaho, Nevada. So we talked about that earlier. I spend, if I want to spend time out away, that's where I go in those areas, those general areas, trying not to hotspot anybody here because in the upland world and especially in the chucker hunter world, that's a big no, no is hotspotting and people get very serious about it. Yeah. And you're talking about like, you don't want to say exactly where you're going. Yeah. Uh, which, dude, I get with waterfowling. Uh, I was talking to a buddy of mine who was asking about, like, possibly me giving him a pin to take his kid hunting. Uh, 
and we're both on the board, the Arkansas board of backcountry hunters and anglers. And I was like, I'll give you this spot, but like, you know, the rules don't tell anybody about this spot. Don't ever go back to it, <laughs> you know, without checking with me first. Uh, and that almost seems a little, uh, you know, out of order, like with a, a public land hunting organization, but I mean, these are hard-earned spots, and it's you're dealing with competition, and it, it takes a lot of work to find them. Uh, I, for me, for waterfowling, so I imagine it's the same thing with upland. It's uh, it's just part of bird hunting etiquette. Mm-hmm. So, you took me to your spot today. I know where that spot's at. Yeah. If let's say it was a public spot, it, I don't beyond that. You took me to your spot. I know where that spot's at. I'm not going back to that spot without you. Yeah. Or, if, or shoot me a text and say, are you exactly. cool? Exactly. And and you going is real different than you taking a couple of your buddies with you. Exactly. And uh, when I take new people hunting, I don't take them to my spots. Yeah. We go and explore and find new spots. Mm-hmm. So, And that's one of the things I really like to focus on with new people is if you're getting into this, I'm not just going to take you out, put you on birds, and we're going to run. I'm going to take you out. And much like your learning experience through uh, processing, hunting, processing, cooking, my teaching experience, my teaching uh, experiences, we go out. You don't just drop your dog. You go and you find the areas like you guys went out and scouted birds for us last mm-hmm. night. That's I go out and I scout birds. It's not as easy because we have some great distances to cover, but I got a general eye for what. Uh, habitat we need to find sure we're going to get to that habitat we're going to look around i'm going to show you what you need to look for uh a blessed day is a snow day and i can look for tracks they're not always there it's dry it's arid you're not always going to find tracks sometimes it's wet you can still find them but what i am going to find i'm going to find scat i'm going to find feathers i'm going to find roosts i'm going to find all these things that tell me birds are in this area the colors the age doing those things it's going to allow me to say okay these birds were here two three days ago this is really old i don't know how long this roost has been out or we got birds in the area and the dog's going to be hot so when you say when you're talking about a roost do you mean like you're finding like piles of scat underneath a tree or something yes so you're finding piles if it's a small covey you'll find it here in the rocks in the rim rocks or under a bush or in one of their little roost piles and you're just finding, you find a nice one, two foot wide area. When you run into absolute gold, you walk up and there's a couple of spots I know in Oregon where I can walk up there and it's just a six by eight swath of nothing but chucker poop. Isn't that weird that like as hunters, you can get so excited over shit. I take pictures of it. Yeah. <laughs> I take pictures yeah, of yeah, it yeah. and post it on Instagram. <laughs> I've done that when I was when I was trying to find a black bear a few years ago, man. Just the the most success I had that first year was just I found a whole like I found where a bed had been a bear had been hanging out and eating black guns and there was like all this poop everywhere and I was just stoked. Uh I wanna backtrack a little bit here because so we're talking. So we named a couple of these these species that you're talking about, like Hungarian partridges or uh, pheasants. Uh, but a lot of these are introduced species, right? So I mean, you are. Tell me which species are introduced, 
when they were introduced and then which species are like native to those areas that you're hunting? Um, the Hungarian partridge and the chucker were both introduced in the, I believe they started the introduction in the late 30s, early 40s. They really got serious about it in the 60s, 70s. And those are what all of our established populations come from here in uh, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Montana, Wyoming. That's pretty much covers the chucker range. Hungarian partridge, I think, kind of moved out into South Dakota, North Dakota also. Um, and where are those birds from originally? They're from the Himalayan regions. So Iran was a place we got a lot from. Okay. And they and come, you wait, what was you were telling me about that, like the Shah of Iran? And that's just a uh, running theory is because we were good buddies with the Shah of Iran at that time, during that time period from the 30s through the 70s. Uh, we had great access to him, and it was probably like some kind of good gift exchange on his part. To Do, do the Himalayas, they run all the way to Iran? I, I associate that with like Nepal. And Pakistan... Afghanistan, sure, yeah, all the all the stands kind of touch that. Yeah, area. yeah, okay. So that's where we get those birds from, and they, uh, and then we have our pheasants, and pheasants range all the way there Indo-European bird, so they range from Asia, in the form that we know them, they range from Asia all the way to Hungary, I believe, okay. and maybe a little further, but. That's a bird that you actually find in Europe that belongs there because Europe and Asia are actually just one big giant continent. Yeah. Uh, and those are the introduced species that I hunt. And then grouse, I don't hunt it as religiously as they do in the Midwest, but we do have nice populations and I will hunt them if I'm in the area. Uh, we have good grouse populations, good rough grouse populations. And in some areas they overlap with chucker. So, uh, chuckers, like we were talking about, they love the cheat grass. They love that high arid spaces where you're looking for, depending on time of year and forage. That also is, that plays a point, uh, important, uh, part of what you find when you're looking for chuckers. Because on a wet year like this year, those birds can be further back. You can get them way back from the river. On a dry year, you're going to be closer to the rivers, trying to uh, get a hold of those birds, finding springs, things like that. Because they've got to they've got to stay in some sort of proximity to water. They have to stay in some sort of proximity to water, but it doesn't have to be a whole bunch. So if you can find a nice little spring coming out of a hillside, you can start locating birds around there in a far canyon back away from the river. What what was in those areas before they introduced those birds, you know, 75 years ago? Oh, I don't know. There, I know. There, there was not, I mean, is there not another upland bird there now? We have sage grouse, but not the numbers that it's a permitted hunt. Okay. And it's not the great numbers like going to somewhere like South Dakota, North Dakota that have more than we do and you don't have to permit them out. Uh, I've never hunted them in Oregon. So I just kind of, I've, I've found them and I know where they're at, but I, I'd never take the opportunity to hunt them there. Okay. Uh, I want, I want to backtrack with you real quick. 
and I love this because you're like you're going so deep and <laughs> you're going so deep into what you're passionate about. But I, I'd like to know what you said you got a different dog and that changed the way you were hunting and what you were pursuing. So I know like now you're hunting drothers, right? Uh, I hunt turban wire hairs and wire haired pointing griffons. Okay. So my next dog's going to be a draw. And so, and a drother is like a, is like a specialized version of a, uh, German wire haired, right? Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm using shorthand in, in layman terms. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then you said Griffons. What were you? What was the dog that like changed what you were doing and what you were pursuing? It was actually the Griffon that changed what I was doing, because I came from a big waterfowl family where everybody owned a lab. Okay, so when you were growing up, it was labs. It wasn't golden retrievers anymore. Nope. Okay. I I got my first golden retriever when I was in high school because everybody else alone owned labs, but I wasn't super serious about training this dog. So this is my evolution of dog training. I got a golden retriever. Me and this dog went out, shot ducks. She went and retrieved them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, she wasn't fancy. There was no hand signals. There was no calls. There was no whistles. It was just her getting ducks on the river. Everybody else hunted labs. I refused to hunt labs because that's just my personality. I guess I'm a little contrary in certain things. So I got a golden retriever. Fast forward, uh, married, have children, don't have a wife anymore, but still have children, and I get a dog. (laughs) As you do, yeah. And I got this uh, malnutrition-looking little German short hair that is a he was a once in a lifetime dog because I had still no idea what I was doing with dogs. I hadn't even started to learn yet. But I dropped this dog out of the box at six months old, and he pointed like a champ, retrieved, and was hard as nails. You couldn't break this dog. He absolutely just loved to hunt. And he loved my girls, so that was good. And the other funny thing was, everybody's hunting labs. I'm hunting the German short hair, which my daughters, who were five and six at the time, had named Baby. So not only am I getting... uh, razzed for hunting a german short hair i'm getting hunt razzed for hunting a dog named baby and we get this Wait, were people using labs for upland stuff no we're hunting waterfowl at okay this time. so okay. we're hardcore waterfowl hunting we're hunting the rivers we're hunting ponds then we're i'm still in the willamette valley at this time and just hunting nothing but waterfowl pretty much because all the upland are gone and we'd get over to Wampin every once in a while, hunt some pheasants. They still had a good population then, and quail, and a little bit of chucker. But we're hunting, I'm hunting ducks and geese with this German short hair. He's got his little neoprene vest for when it's cold. Dog absolutely hated the water, but he was so bird motivated, he'd break ice to get a duck. And so that was just my duck dog. I had a German short hair. That was my duck dog. He was awesome. Dud blind retrieves. Just like I said, he was the bulletproof dog, the dog, that once in a lifetime dog that you get. Fast forward, he's 11 years old and diagnosed with cancer. And I, you know, do what you got to do with your dogs because you owe it for, you owe it to them to take care of them when it's that time. And I had been looking and I was like, "Eh, I think I'm going to start trying to do some more upland hunting and I'd been looking at different breeds. Didn't know if I wanted another short hair right at that point. Wound up with this little 
fuzzy dog on Father's Day. My daughter went and picked him up for me out of Idaho. We were over actually on the Snake River fishing on our annual fishing family fishing trip where we go over and catch a bunch of catfish and blast and bluegill for fish fries and she gives me this little puppy and I got more serious into it, started reading books and uh, got very into training. I hadn't joined any other organizations yet, but I was still training him for Upland. And that's and this, this dog is a Griffon. This is the Griffon. My, he's still with me. He's going to be 10 here in the fall. Well, describe what a Griffon looks like. Uh, well, I can describe what my Griffon looks like and tell you with all honesty, it's not the coat you want. He's got a big fuzzy head. He's got kind of a blown undercoat and slightly harsh outer coat, which is not what they should have. They should have a shorter, harsher coat and not be fuzzy in the legs and not have a giant fuzzy head that collects burrs. So when you see a picture of him, you'll see that I want to say, and I'm probably going to get a lot of heat for this, that, that show face that's nice and fuzzy that everybody wants to look at and it's fun and cute. But if you look at my dog that is primarily featured in my Instagram page now, you'll notice that she has a smoother face, a smoother coat. And the difference is taking her in a river bottom with cockle burrs is a two minute wipe down because they literally don't stick to her. I just have to knock them off with my hand, taking him into a uh, river bottom with cockle burrs. That's 45 minutes of me combing cockle burrs out of this dog. He's a great dog. Love him to death. Bad goat. And I didn't know any better at the time, mm -hmm. but I know better now. So man, there's so many things I want to ask you about, but, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to freeze frame. We're, we're, we're going to come back to dogs and upload, honey. But uh, we've talked about this a little bit, but like you used to ride bulls. You've, you've, I mean, you've done a lot of stuff that it seems like, I mean, what you're pursuing now as far as like uh, hunting the style you do it, right? Uh, where you live, riding bulls, just doing these things. I mean, you've got to be like one of the only brown people that you're regularly seeing in these spaces. And so, you know, I think that th these conversations come up a lot, like especially in the outdoor space or the hunting space, because, you know, people of color are just underrepresented in the media of it. But, you know, I do. It's just kind of weird sometimes to be an outsider or just physically be recognized as being different somehow. And so I kind of wonder, we all, we all find our own ways to deal with that. You know, some people become like, uh, or, or some folks are, are just like gregarious and that's kind of the way they navigate it. Some people become hostile. Some people become closed off. There's all these different ways to navigate being different in a space. Right. Uh, I have suspicions about how you navigate these spaces, but I'd be interested to know like how you've done that growing up uh, and how you think, I mean, there's got to be some real resiliency built in there that probably contributes to all sorts of other things in your life. And I would assume 
how you hunt and like what you want to hunt and and what you like about that i was actually very fortunate not only did i have great brothers that took me everywhere i had great uncles so i had a very uh inspired childhood you had you had like a a community of related community with you yes and that's uh oftentimes people will hear me say when i'm out uh upland hunting i really try to encourage upland hunting upland hunting i really try to encourage people of color to upland hunt because one of my favorite well when it happens it'll be one of my favorite things is to pull up next to somebody who looks like me out hunting and be like hey how you doing do you mean you mean when that happens, like when you encounter it or that one day you hope to encounter it? One day I hope to encounter it. Yeah. Because unless I'm taking them and generally they're related to me, I don't see people who look like me out upland hunting in yeah. the spaces that I hunt. I crossed, spent 10 days crossing Montana. And I think I told you I saw a person that looked like me in Glasgow, Montana, go into the, it was the post office, not the bank. And we waved at each yeah, other. Yeah, give them that old. So you didn't even do a head nod, man. <laughs> no, you straight we, up waved. We huh? straight up waved at each other. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that was that was the person I saw that whole ten days, and I crossed three states and hunted. I, I spent a lot of time in the field. It just, it just, uh, it it doesn't happen. And I'm waiting for that to happen. And if I have to make it happen by getting somebody out there and getting them going that's what i want to do or just man like platforming yourself and other people seeing it and thinking it's cool and yeah. wanting to do it you know uh and i mean i would definitely say that your enthusiasm for it is is super infectious and attractive you know now if you went to say like georgia or something there's a deep 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 history of uh, hundreds of years of black people being involved in bird dog train training and upland hunting, it, kind of like it looks different and the way they do it's different. And we were talking about that uh, this weekend as well. But <clears throat> yeah, just like the places where you're at. I mean, one you're in places where there's like not a lot of black people, right? That's very true. Like when I was in Montana this uh, this summer, uh, I was up there for like this sick event, and like. The black people there were the me and uh, the dudes from Twenty Four Seven Hunt that were up there for the sick event too, and I think those were the black people I saw, you know. And I even ran into this deal where like I didn't have any hair grease, and I was like in Bozeman trying to figure out. Like I called Renar up and I was like, "Man, you got any hair grease?" I, I just he was like, "No, nah, man, you got to go get some Vaseline." <laughs> uh, but but anyway, it's it's just kind of worth noting, but. But like even before that, like you were talking about like riding bulls, you're the second person on this podcast that was a bull rider. So, living my life, what I, what I was getting to with having those great role models out there is these were the men who took me to places that helped me develop my security and who I am. And wherever I go, I'm still secure in who I am mm -hmm. because they were not afraid to take me into these places. So you talk about 
me being steeped in Oregon, I am very steeped in Oregon. I'm very steeped in Oregon history. I've been to most places of in, in, in Oregon, and I've walked a lot of Oregon. Not just driving through. I've hunted and walked, be it deer, elk, upland bird, waterfowl. I've spent a lot of time in outdoor Oregon. So that helped me become comfortable. Uh, and just... I enjoy being around people. I enjoy being around people who love doing the things that I like to do. I don't like I don't like being around people who don't like to do the things that I like to do or have something negative to say. Most of the people I surround myself are positive interaction people that you just want to deal with on a daily basis. When I get that person, so one of my favorite stories is I started Hardwire Outdoors and I had multiple people that I talked to about it and I had friends that were like hey you know what this is a great idea we really enjoy seeing you hunt your dogs this is all good we enjoy participating as a family because it's not just me as my brother and my nephews uh but I had this one person that says you know the outdoor industry is so hard to break into I wouldn't do it it's just it's not something you should do you know what I did with that person locked him I never talk to that person again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I see him on the street, I'll be like, hey, how you doing? But at this point in time, I have no desire to reach out to that person. And that's how I live my life. I don't need negativity because I have so many positive people around me. So I can cut you quick. I can cut you loose quick. Uh, Man, you know, there's something. There's a lot to what you just said. I'd say specifically the thing I keyed in on is... uh. You know, you talking about having these role models and these male role models in your family that took you places and instilled confidence in you. You know, I'm by their their example. You know how they live their life. Because uh, man, it it. I mean, you're talking about your grandfather moving like all his people up to this place, uh, like that that kind of took some cojones, you know, and a mindset. And I'm sure that mindset percolates itself down through his children. And as they have children, you know, that like, uh, we can do, we can make our own way and we can do what we want to do, you know? Uh, but man, I keep asking you about this, man. Tell me about riding these bulls. Oh, that was, oh, the dalliances of a young man, you know? I wanted to do it. People said, once again, that's not something you can do. And I it, like getting into hunting. If you don't have an ingress into these things, you have to learn it on your own. So I made friends. I made friends with people who did this. Yeah. And they took me. They started me. They showed me how to do it. And it was a very fun two years of my life that I just bummed around and rode around on bulls and you're not you're trucks. not a horse guy i am not a horse guy yeah i yeah. heard you talking about that but <laughs> and you know i didn't know this until i was up there this this spring that oregon is like deep deep heavy rodeo culture yeah uh yeah so i would never i and look this is just ignorance but like i think before this i thought of oregon as like i said uh these like big wet forests and like lumberjacks. <laughs> well, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. Uh, uh, where I grew up was very 
agricultural agriculture was the largest industry was the largest employer for a very long time uh when it was more manual so there was a lot of agriculture but not only was there a lot of agriculture there was a lot of logging so most of my friends at some point had worked in a mill before it really started to shut down all their parents had worked in mills and it was just part of the culture so you were not far off but now when you visited we're more uh technology based and probably agriculture than the state i think is our how it runs for employment here in that state uh and what kind of agriculture <sighs> well when i was young and pheasant hunting was good we had fence rows and seed grains so that was very uh beneficial to pheasants and quail and everybody else down there in the valley then we started to switch more towards grass seed we are now the grass seed capital yeah that's the what was there when i was that's what i saw when i was there yeah and we farm all the way to the fence and we have nothing left for habitat for these upland birds that's why we don't have good populations anymore uh and now we're really there's a lot of filberts being put in so that even reduces habitat even more filbert is a hazelnut for the rest of the world it's a yeah. hazelnut <laughs> uh and i mean you do have a ton of turkeys and that's an introduced species and that's what i was up there chasing and man people hate them they treat them like <laughs> like rats like well, you want to come and shoot these turkeys come and shoot them yeah so my every time people talk about turkeys i'm like yeah just imagine my fedex driver trying to chase them out of my neighbor's driveway i can see it from my uh, bedroom window and I'll hear him honking at him and the turkeys are just in the middle of the driveway and won't get out of the driveway and he's out there chasing them doing all kinds of stuff so yeah around my house there's quite a few turkeys and everywhere else as soon as you get just a little bit out of town and not even out of town uh there's lots I have lots of town turkey pictures so yeah we got a lot of turkeys yeah I mean actually I don't even want to talk about that anymore because I don't want anybody going there uh don't go there Go there and chuck her, hunt. Don't go there in Turkey. <laughs> Man, so you mentioned hardwired outdoors. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, if you would. And then, like, what's your intention with it? What are, you know, if you could snap your fingers and magically have it be everything you dreamed of, what would it be? Uh, well, hardwired outdoors, like I said, it started. It's not just me. It's my brother, my oldest brother uh bob my nephew kyle my nephew chris and my friend for uh as long as i can pretty much remember uh ron we they supported my dream and my dream is to uh get a platform for once again people that look like us to know to normalize hunting normalize fishing normalize just being in the outdoors because not all of my content is about me and not all about uh full-on hunting all the time we're wanting people just to get into the outdoors and if i had if i could snap my fingers and have it be exactly what i wanted i would have a platform where i could uh introduce people do it pretty much as a full-time job introducing people to the outdoors in a more public setting so get some of that uh not only sponsorship but screen time that 
everybody else has been getting for years. All the people that I've watched uh, on those hunting shows, all those people that I've watched, watched on those fishing shows growing up, where, once again, nobody looked like me. I want to be out there and not only provide myself, but people who are learning to do these things, people who are interested in these things out there actually doing it so we can be an inspiration for some kids set and be it in a small town in the middle of Georgia or in a city like LA who's like, wow, look at them. I would really like to try that and uh, morph it out to encompass some kind of program to allow them to have those resources to get out and find whatever their passion is. Are your daughters, I'm sure you raised them hunting. Are they continuing that or are they, that kind of dad's thing? My oldest daughter, uh, she's busy with her family. Mm-hmm. So she isn't as gung ho anymore. Her oldest son though, we are planning, I am trying to plan a uh, quail hunting trip down to Arizona because they live in Vegas. So I want to take him and go because he is absolutely at this point obsessed with hunting. I send him for subscriptions to hunting magazines, all kinds of stuff. It, it's not an influence for me, but he wants to learn how to fish. He wants to learn how to hunt. And it's just that they're a little too far away for him to do it with me all the time. But I want to make those opportunities available to him. So like one of the things I'm going to buy him for his birthday is a fishing trip because I can't do it, but I can get somebody there to take care of it for him and take him and his dad out. Uh, my youngest daughter, surprisingly, the thing that I would want them to do most is go bird hunting with me. Neither one of them are interested in bird hunting. But my youngest daughter still goes big game hunting with me. So whenever we draw deer tag, she goes. Yeah, and so we're talking a lot because you're so passionate about upland hunting. But, like, you guys, like, every year you're going elk hunting. You're chasing muleys. Are you chasing muleys or different kind of deer? Uh, we do muleys. We do whitetail. We, where, are you hunting, where are you hunting whitetail at? Uh, well, uh, my two nephews... I don't know if Kyle got one this year, uh, but Dustin and Chris, they got uh whitetail in Wisconsin here just a few months back on the rifle season. And they did elk in New Mexico, which I missed out on that trip because I was in, I was in Montana. So they were on elk hunting in New Mexico and I was hunting in Montana. So I didn't get to go on that trip, but we try to get somewhere each year. Uh, two years ago, it was, and when we do get really good tags, everybody drops everything and we just make it into a family hunt. So my nephew drew uh, Utah, a really good unit in Utah, and we dropped everything and just made that a hunt about him. And he got a really nice ball. And so what, he's got the tag, but you you guys are all going out together. You're making camp together, and then you help him pack it out? Yep. Help him scout, do all that stuff. Uh, they went to him and my buddy, Ron. They got uh, Arizona, northern Arizona tags that same year. Got really nice bull. And our next big one is probably one of a should draw in Wyoming in a good unit. So if we do that, if any of us draw that, we'll drop. 
and do that. Uh, but outside of that, we always apply in Oregon for elk. They apply for deer. I don't really do deer in Oregon anymore, but, uh, I still apply for elk with them cause that's the family hunt where even if you don't hunt, you can still come over to hunting camp. And that once that is a big part of my family tradition of hunting. So prior to our tag, tag draw system where you could just buy over the counter, it was not about how many people we could get over there to kill deer during deer season. It was our family vacation. So at one point in time, we had 13 tags in camp, but we had 120 some people because dog, all man. my family would come over and we would sit down and have our big giant campfires and all the kids playing in the dirt, horses, everything else you could imagine. And just, it was the family, it was a family get together. Y'all have, y'all have got that many people over there in Oregon oh, or yeah. are they, you pulling them from all oh, over? No, that's just working. Hey, I got a huge family, man. My mom had 14 kids. My dad had 16 kids in their family. So then you multiply that out. I got a giant family. That's why there's black people in Oregon, because <laughs> of your family. <laughs> Good Lord, man. A hundred and something people, really. Yeah. So you made it like that was, did, did y'all do that like in lieu of a family reunion? Uh, I would assume so, because we weren't really in that, at that point in time, it wasn't like we were doing giant family reunions where we were going back to Arkansas or Texas or anything like that, but we all wanted to get together. And when you don't have a large community of uh, black people in an area, you kind of stick together. So your family stuck together. You knew everybody. And there weren't a lot of black people in Oregon at that time. More people have moved in over the years, but there was a point in time where Pretty much everybody I knew that was black was related to you. was related to me or had come out of the same cotton camps as my parents came out of my grandparents and migrated to Oregon. That's how they all knew each other. Man, that's really that's some really wild stuff. Do you uh, this is a side note? Do you uh, do you kind of consider you and your people like we're the we're the originators and everybody else is Johnny Come Latelys? No, because. There were a few there. There were a few people there, and we happened to get to know them, too. Yeah. But my family's been there a long time, so I wouldn't call us the originators, but we had a lot of people there. <laughs> yeah, you're old school, for sure. Uh, I'm trying to decide what I want to ask you. Uh, man, what... Uh, Okay, so let's let's do this. Let's circle back because we're kind of doing like the history. We're talking about where ethos comes from. We're talking about familial familial connections and stuff. Let's go back into a little bit more of the like the down and dirty, nerdy stuff about hunting, right? So, and this man, this is something I love about you is that like, and you're talking about like your whole family. It sounds like like you get it. Like you don't. I mean, like you get after it. Like you're spending September through February like living in your truck, moving, you're going from state to state, uh, like really enthusiastically pursuing this. Uh, so like what is a perfect, it's, you know, what, what is the, uh, what's like just the height of upland hunting season? Like what time period is that? 
Oh, that is so funny because there really isn't one. It's all weather dependent. Okay. Yeah. I tell stories about being in Montana where it's 70 degrees, 80 degrees. Dogs are about dying. It's hot. We're only hunting in the morning. And then two feet of snow rolls in and everything changes. And that was in September, October, 16 degrees, 15 inches of snow, two more feet fell. That's mid-October. This year, I'm there in November. It's nice, 45 degrees, 50 degrees, beautiful hunts. It was great. In Oregon, it can be hot. And hot is not good for, especially with my dogs. They just don't really like the hot. So I try to keep, if I'm going to do a 70-degree day, I'm doing half a day. I'm trying to keep them cool. I would prefer a nice 30-degree day. That would be great little snow on the ground that's even better that's a day that we can me and the dogs both can just move and is that because like you're seeing tracks or because that snow is holding scent or why uh snow makes it easier to see the track so i know sure. what's going on i love that but if there's no snow just having that cool is such a plus for me and running hairier dogs i guess i don't run i know people running short hairs and pointers and stuff they can run their dogs a little hotter than me but i just don't have the ability to do that because i don't want to do that to my dogs yeah and i carry a lot of water because once again we're in arid conditions so if it's hot i gotta carry more water and so and you're hoofing all of this you're just like you're walking with these dogs yeah so i mean what's an average distance wise what's an average amount of miles, miles. really yep 10 miles is nothing half a day is five miles and and so you you referenced a couple things and I'm it made me realize how little I know about this. I mean I know enough just from cartoons and stuff that you have like these pointing dogs, but are your dogs? So I guess when we're talking about pointing, we're talking about that dog is like keen and pointing with its body, telling you there's birds over and that stuff to help you prepare to get ready for it. And then are you like are you flushing it? Do you have a dog to flush it to get those birds to jump out so you can shoot them or? And then do you have another dog to retrieve it? Or do you have like this one badass dog that does all of it? <laughs> uh, of course, I have the one badass dog that does all of it. I am into versatile dogs. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a term. That is a term. Uh, like we talk about the Southern culture. They have pointers. They want their pointers to point. That's what they want them to do. And if you're really, if you get into a good hunt down there, you have pointers, you have flushers, you have retrievers. So you have uh, pointers, you have cocker spaniels, and you have labs out there in the field. And it's just this amazing orchestra. I don't have that. I don't have um, the bandwidth to carry all these dogs and walk all these miles. So I have a versatile dog. I have a dog that goes out points. And in my perfect world, my dog goes out, catches that scent cone, stops on a dime. I allows me to get up, flush those birds. When the birds flush, I get a good shot. So they're good to, uh, from flush, shot, or flush, bird to wing, shot, fall. And they're watching all this time, marking that bird. And I send them, I release them to go get that bird. That's the perfect world. Get it sometimes? Sometimes you don't. I know guys who are absolutely fanatical about it. I know guys who have dogs that really probably need a lot more work. I kind of find myself in the in-between because of the fact that 
not every situation is perfect and I allow I give my dog some leeway because they need to know how to manage birds outside of a testing situation and I want them to manage birds because they're working out a distance so <sighs> some guys are running their dogs closer my dogs are running out roughly around two three hundred yards not as far as a pointer or setter but way far for a griffon in most circumstances there's a lot of griffons that still run that far are you running collars on these dogs or are you just all visually seeing where the dog's at <laughs> if i wasn't running collars i wouldn't know where my dog's at because i'm in a brown uh landscape with brown dogs and one of my favorite things to do on instagram is to post a picture and be like there's a dog in this picture yeah because there's just brown and you'll find if you find the dog she's on point rock solid it's like uh seeing when we drive by and we see a speck sitting out in soybean stubble and it's like man you got to really look to see them sometimes and then you get a snow goose out there and then then everything pops yeah so yeah gps colors are an absolute godsend for knowing where my dogs are at and i i love it i have mine paired with my watch so I'm just running. Are you running Garmin's? Yeah, I'm running Garmin's. I'm hustling across the field. I know where my dogs are at. My dog goes on point. I know my dog 206 yards up the hill and boom, off I go. Yeah, I've seen that with a uh, hunting coons here in Arkansas. Uh, what? Let me ask you. And this is all for selfish reasons. Uh, with. With these like introduced but established populations, you're still working within hunting season, right? It's not like a year long pursuit, is it? Oh no, there are absolute hunting seasons. So, When's hunting seasons? Uh, this one, you know, our chucker season will end in February or at the end of January. So chuckers, quail, they all end at the end of January. Uh, grouse usually start sometime in uh, September. August, sorry, yeah, usually start sometime in August, which if I was better, I would start hunting grouse in August, but I just tend to not do it. Uh, then you have uh, quail, usually kicks up late September, early October, I remember, chucker, first week of October, that's when that starts. And so you can hunt those all the way until uh, February, pheasant. Starts in October, and you can go till the end of December, I believe. Uh, so then you've got, I mean, you've got a lull between, like, February and the end of the summer. Uh, yeah, kind of. So this year, uh, my brother's got a new puppy, so I don't have a lull. Because you'll be training. I'll be training. I'll be training his puppy, getting her dialed in, and working with another dog that I picked up because I collect dogs sometimes and he is showing well he isn't showing he is very interested in hunting so we're gonna we're gonna take a two-year-old and train him up to hunt, get him out in the field what is your you know we all just like culturally and personally we all have uh we all develop these like ethoses and like our you know within the bounds of the law our our ideas about what's ethical for hunting, right? So what is like on your purity scale or like what you consider ethical or really hunting or whatever, how do you see 
I mean, because what you're talking about is most of what you're doing is you're going out there and like you're finding wild birds, yeah. right? Uh, what about? Because I know with upland hunting, it's also a thing to like have released birds and then people go out with that. So, is that something you participate in? And if not, or if so, like how do you feel about that? And where do you wh- where are your lines with that stuff? I absolutely participate in it. I do not see that as uh, unethical because it's a great entry point for people. It's like if you take a kid fishing and you take them fly fishing on a small creek in Montana where every fish can see you for a mile and a half, you're crawling on your belly to get up there, how much enjoyment is a five-year-old going to get out of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you want to take them brim fishing with a cork and a and a cricket and let them be su- successful. Exactly. You want to build that drive, that desire to do that again because you're making your own fishing partner, your own hunting partner, whatever it is. And when you expose new people to these scenarios where they can be successful, I think that's beneficial. It's not uh, the end all. I want you to go out. I want you to be successful. But I'm also going to explain this is not the norm. If you like this, then we'll start going for some wild birds. I'm not going to take you uh, over on the snake and walk you up out of the bottom. I'm going to take you somewhere nice and kind of flat. See if we can get you some birds. But I also use it as a reward system. At the end of every year, I take my dogs out on what's going to be a successful hunt. They are going to find birds. They're going to bring me back birds. They're going to get birds in their mouth. They're going to be happy dogs. And I usually do it sometime right before the preserve season ends. Take them out, shoot five pheasants over them, let them be successful. Let them be happy. Let them end their year on a positive note. So my ethos is, I think it's a good thing. Do you think that it's, uh, do you get more satisfaction out of hunting wild birds on public land? Oh, absolutely. I uh, I don't know. I call it my flex that my dogs can go out and I can drop them in pretty much any situation and pull up birds. And half of it's them, half of it's me because we are a team. So you have some people who they run their dogs. They go to an area, they drop their dogs off. There was no birds here. But what did you do to help make that dog successful? Did you look at the habitat before you dropped that? As we talked about before, I'm really big in the habitat. You look look at that habitat before you dropped that dog on the ground. There's nothing wrong with your dog. What did you do to make that dog successful? One of my favorites is uh, when I did the one with Lydia and Jimmy. The spot that we wanted to go. So this public land, wild bird hunt, these guys had gotten their experience on uh, preserve hunt, but they wanted to see a wild bird hunt spot. We wanted to go. Somebody was already there. Another piece of etiquette. You don't walk over somebody sure. else. That's yeah. it's happened to me too many times. I don't walk over people. I'm like, Hey, so somebody's already here, but on my way in, I saw a spot that I think looked really good. And we went back, put the dogs on the ground put up a couple of different cubbies just enough for these guys to get an experience because they're kind of tired by the end of it but they got to see wild birds they got to see wild bird habitat they got to see how i track these birds to put my dog in the right spot 
Are you are you Google scouting beforehand? I love e scouting. How do you think I hunt Montana? I was, I e scout the heck out of places. And then you take you kind of narrow it down. Then you take that transferable knowledge and get in there and put yep. boots on the ground and figure it out. That's how I found chuckers in Montana this year because I knew where they should be. I e scouted it. First place I went to, I was like, mm, not as good as it looked. Second place I went to, birds. Yeah. Oh, shoot, man. I got to put some tape underneath this rug. I keep sliding <laughs> it around. Well, man, uh, dude, I've enjoyed the hell out of having you here, man. You're like legit, man. You got a great personality. You're fun to be around. Uh, and I, I absolutely think that what you're talking about as far as like your mission statement for Hardwired Outdoors is is starting to resonate with people and you know like we're kind of talking about this stuff very uh pointedly and frankly but i i, I do feel like you kind of have a similar idea about it that i do that is uh you just present yourself as who you are and you allow that to resonate with other people you know you're you're not necessarily on a soapbox talking about you know like blackbird hunters unite but you're you're just allowing yourself to create an orbit and i that's what i really try to do i try to project myself as an average bird hunter because sometimes i get one bird sometimes i get four birds sometimes i get eight birds but i'm not about stacking piles i'm about good dog work i'm about getting people interested in getting out there and do what i do and I just have a little asterisk, a extra special spot to get people who look like me to get out there. But not everybody that I interact with look like me, and I'm still willing to get out there and help. Uh, and you talk about, you asked earlier about me living my life and portraying myself the way I do. I want to be that honest person because I don't have time to remember what fake thing people I might have done to impress somebody. So if I just if I'm me. I can always just be me. Yeah, man, that's that's a good way to live life, man. And you know, we we kind of dress it up a lot of times, you know, talking about authenticity and all this other stuff. But it's just like, just be who you are, you know. Just like what your mom would tell you, or your grandma would tell you. Like it's easier to remember the truth than it is a lie, you know. And I do think that a lot of people are so uh, so insecure uh, or just don't like themselves enough that they can't do that. They can't just be who they are. Uh, because we, we are all these like strange conglomerations of things, you know? Uh, and yeah, man, I appreciate it. I appreciate what you're doing. The whole reason I was asking about that is because I'm coming up to Oregon in the spring to Turkey hunt. I was like, man, I got to try and make something happen. But, uh, I guess I might have to, I might have to make it happen. So man, maybe in August, because when it's waterfowling, I got to be around here, but uh, or maybe September or something. Maybe I can get make a trip up there, man. I'd love to go out there and see your dogs work. Jimmy spoke very, very highly about your dogs working, uh, so I'll give you that pat on the back, man. It <laughs> says it, man. Dude's out here talking good about you, but man. So I always ask folks uh, if people want to get a hold of you or consume your content. What's the best way to do that? Uh, best way to get me is on IG. I spend most of my time, provide most of my content for Instagram and our uh, 
store can be reached at hardwired.com. All right, man. Well, uh, and do yourselves a favor. Uh, take a look at that IG account, and you'll see that it is actual uh, fact that people look like their dogs. <laughs> uh, they both have the same kind of beard, <laughs> the same mustaches, uh, uh, and they both look super happy when they've got birds. And I, yeah, I do carry them around in my mouth sometimes. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate you, bud. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. I so appreciate you spending the last hour or so with me. If you like this podcast and you want other people to know about it, if you want it to grow and hopefully do bigger and better things, please take a minute to subscribe on whatever platform you choose to listen to your podcast on. Leave a five-star review. And if you take a few moments to leave a brief written review, that helps tremendously as well. As always, this podcast is produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. You can keep up with what I'm doing and follow all things Black Duck Revival by going to blackduckrevival.com or by following me on social media at Black Duck Revival. We're getting to the very end of waterfowl season here in Arkansas, and very soon I'll be switching gears to guiding these backwater bayou catfish trips. I'd love to have you join me on one. If you're interested, you can get a hold of me at either one of those platforms that I previously mentioned. Also look for early spring sometime in March. We'll be announcing the limited number of waterfowl hunt dates for the 2022-2023 season, as well as a few surprises and new opportunities to come and learn uh, how to make the most of your harvest. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Until then.